Welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios D3 in general podcast. I am, of course, Al, and uh, returning to the show today is Josh. You remember uh, he uh, helped me many, many episodes ago when we talked about controversial video games. And today, Josh is back to talk more about video games. So how's it going today, Josh? Hopefully this one actually records, unlike the heavy metal <laughs> episode we recorded. Yes. Uh, or didn't record, I should say. Yeah, we Josh and I tried recording an episode on heavy metal music, and uh hope to take another stab at it again someday. Um, but for some reason, my thing was uh, acting up where it was only recording my end, and then for some reason it wasn't recording Josh's end. So I switched to a different program, and hopefully it will work now. So far, it's been worked well for a couple other episodes I've done, so uh, crossing the fingers, and here we go. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about uh, video games, specifically arcade versus home ports. Back when you were a kid and you heard that one of your favorite arcade games was getting a home port, did you react with anticipation or dread? Well... It, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a combination of both really because it's the only way you can play the game without plunking quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter yeah. in it. <laughs> but at the same time, you know that home limitations are going to severely hobble the game, and th that obviously changed with the different generations. But I remember when we got arcade ports on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, and you knew there was no way the Atari hardware was going to be able to even emulate Pac-Man properly, oh, yeah. let alone some of the more complex games of that era. Yeah, that's that's true. It was for me. It was usually that mixed feeling because yeah, there was the anticipation that you know you could play your favorite game uh, whenever you wanted to, um, but yeah, there was also the dread factor that uh, they might end up screwing it up because, as you mentioned. One of the biggest challenges to port for porting, a, at least back in the you know the era of the Atari and the NES and the Sega Master System, of course, one of the problems is the hardware for the arcade was just so far ahead of the hardware for the home systems. Now, eventually, of course, the arcade and you know that 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 gap between arcade and uh, home system began to get less far apart i guess you could say um i mean i personally noticed it around the 16-bit era what about you well okay you, you've you've got a couple of different things at play here mm -hmm. one you, you brought up the sega master system the sega master system due to outside influences was almost exclusively arcade ports they had a few of their original games like fantasy star and mm -hmm. whatnot and, you know keith courage but the Sega Master System, because Nintendo had this weird licensing deal, which turned out to be illegal, mm -hmm. that it was it was a it was essentially a conspiracy and a monopoly, where it said if you make a game for the Nintendo, you cannot make it for a competing system. So what that left was because Sega was an arcade game developer, all they basically had was all of the arcade ports that they could do from the arcade games that they already had developed. So the, the, there was, if you wanted arcade games, you bought the Master System. If you wanted original games, you bought the Nintendo. So there was that thing. But the Master System, while actually a lot of people don't realize this, was a more powerful system. They had better hardware, better sound driver, and better video drivers than the NES did. Only slightly, but it was a more technically proficient system. But because NES had locked down, because Nintendo had locked down the games, that's why the Master System sold like crap. All they had was the games you already play in the arcade, but in an inferior version. And I had ones like R-Type and Rostin, and they just could not compare to the ones that in the arcade, and you actually would prefer paying a quarter to play it because it was such a superior version in the arcade. Yeah, and I, I know that's one of the things that a lot of, I think there's a lot of people that don't realize it. Uh, you know, again, you mentioned that first, yeah, the technically the the Sega, and I believe it was the same for both the Master System and the Genesis, technically had better hardware than the, the Nintendo competitors, 
Um, but you mentioned that factor that, yeah, they essentially said, okay, if you develop, like, for example, Konami, uh, back when they developed Castlevania, you know, yeah, you, unfortunately, you couldn't see a, a Castlevania game for the uh, for the, the Sega Master System or the uh, the Genesis. Well, I know they did actually eventually come out with the Genesis Castlevania game, but again, and, and you mentioned it that it turned out Nintendo was engaging in a little illegal behavior. Um, but yeah, that was one certainly one factor that uh, made a huge difference is just the difference in hardware, but um, another thing is controls. I mean, you probably remember there were some games like Kari Warriors where not only did you have the joystick, but you had, there was the the knob on top of the joystick actually turned. And that was very important for Ikari Warriors. You know, for those who haven't played it or might not be familiar with it, Ikari Warriors is from the top-down perspective, and you're playing a couple of soldiers armed with machine guns and grenades that are trying to fight off waves of enemies. One of the things that Akari Warriors did is you had that knob that you turned on the top and that let you fire in a different direction than uh, the way you were moving. So you could actually like move to the left while firing behind you. And so sometimes that was very useful. And as I recall, the NES, uh, the Nintendo version did pull it off, though it didn't quite work as well as the arcade. Um, starting to think of that. I'm sure there's other games that use that. The, the the main one I'm thinking of is Forgotten Worlds. Oh yeah. The I, Forgotten Worlds. The, the there wasn't a controller or even a button. It was kind of the yeah. two together, where you 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 had this little knob that you had. It was a side scroller, but you had a 360 degree shooting, and you would press down on the little knob to fire and then rotate it to shoot in any direction or all directions at once. And a D-pad cannot emulate that effect. It was, the, the Sega Genesis version was irritating because you used a D-pad to move around and to rotate, you hit the A or C button to spin either backwards or forwards. Oh, yeah. It was unplayable on the Sega Genesis. And then it got a little easier when they ported it to the PlayStation 2, because the the analog stick worked a little bit better, but it was still very clunky and not nearly as smooth as the arcade. So Forgotten Worlds, in the arcade, I got so good at Forgotten Worlds that I could beat that whole damn near impossible game on one play, which is, you know, 50 cents, so two quarters. I could beat that. I was dying constantly on the PS2 and Sega Genesis versions because the controller just doesn't work the same as this was a made controller. Same thing with Rampart. You have to have a rollerball. Without a rollerball, Rampart is impossible to play on a Super Nintendo. It's impossible. You cannot play Rampart on a Genesis or or a SNES. But yeah, I mean, Forgotten Realms, uh, that was always one of my favorite games in the uh, arcade. And I mean, I I haven't played... The Forgotten Genesis. Worlds. Forgotten, Forgotten Realms is the RPG. <laughs> yes, that, sorry about that. But yeah, Forgotten Worlds, uh, a lot of fun in the arcade. And I've played the uh, home port for the Xbox. And I'm um, sorry, I know, yeah, having the two joysticks did help. Um, I personally felt that the Xbox version played very well. Um, not sure about the... I never had a PlayStation, so I'm not not sure how that worked. But yeah, it's one of those games where you really need the two joysticks for. And um, you know, another along a similar line, there was a. Have you ever played Midnight Resistance? I don't know that one, but I do know. Speaking of two joysticks, Smash TV. Oh yeah. Smash TV on the Nintendo with a D-pad does not work at all. It's a disaster. Now, when you've got the analog sticks on the PS2, that actually doesn't play as badly because it's weirder to play it with your thumbs than it is with your hands, though. I I know they had an option where you could use one player with two controllers. And I think, again, the the aim was to have it where, you know, again, you use the D-pad on controller... Uh, player controller one to move your character and then 
you know, you would use the D-pad on the second one to fire. But yeah, it was, it bordered on unplayable or at least very difficult when you were using just one controller because the way I recall they worked it is you had one, if you pressed one of the buttons, you fired in the direction you were moving, but you could press the other button and it would, you'd only fire in the last direction you were moving. So it took a lot of getting used to. Um, so yeah, that definitely is one challenge of controls. Uh, as I was saying with the Midnight Resistance, it's a side-scrolling shoot-em-up similar to Contra. And, you know, I'm sure you've probably played Contra. Um, unfortunately, it, again, it used that, uh, that joy, like the Akari Warriors type joystick where it had the thing that rotated. And again, it whistles to allow you to move in one direction while firing in another. Now, the I played the Genesis version, and it was, again, it, it just didn't work out because it was like, as you mentioned with Forgotten Worlds, almost said realms there, but it was like Forgotten Worlds where you had to press one button to rotate your aim to the left and one to rotate it to the right. Um, so it just became very very difficult because again you've got these enemies coming up behind you and you gotta try to work your way so you can you know get somewhere so you don't get killed while you're waiting for your gun to move into the right position so yeah unfortunately but but, but see the thing is al that can also go the opposite direction too when when you would play like remember the play choice 10 which oh, is yeah. essentially nintendo games but you could play them in the arcade these games that are designed for the d-pad absolutely do not work with joysticks and buttons yeah I so th that does go the opposite direction as well like the play choice 10 i'm great at super mario brothers i'm dying constantly on a play <laughs> choice 10 because i'm not used to playing this with my hands i'm used to playing it with my thumbs yeah and i i know i remember we the uh arcade that we had in our local shopping mall um i grew up in new berlin which is not far from brookfield and Brookfield Square is the, the mall there, and we had Aladdin's Castle. And the, yeah, the uh, Play Choice 10 was one of my favorite games there because, I mean, I'm sure you've probably heard of, okay, we're going to get off topic here, but you remember Goonies 2 for the NES, right? I never played it for the NES. I have played the arcade version of that, though. Yep, because uh, the Play Choice 10 actually had the first Goonies game, which instead of being the... You know, because the Goonies 2, for those who may not have played it, was a lot like Metroid. Um, you had this large world that, uh, you know, you would have to go to various areas in. And sometimes you'd have to backtrack because you needed to find, you know, a certain item in order to progress. Well, uh, the first Goonies game was a lot simpler. You didn't have uh, Mikey. Is it Mikey or Mickey was the main of main character wasn't Mikey. It? Mikey yeah he didn't have as many weapon choices I think he just had like a slingshot and I think bombs but other than that he mostly kicked uh his opponents so it was a lot shorter and it didn't have that exploration aspect that the uh that Goonies 2 did but it was still a lot of fun and I remember playing that on the play choice 10 but yeah there I talked to people while they were playing it and yeah this they had the same problem you described where, you know, they're dying left and right. And it's like, uh, I, I can't use it with this joystick. I'm used to the D-pad. Um, and then, of course, uh, another thing that, you know. Light guns. Oh, yeah. If you've any, any arcade light gun game. Now, obviously, you did have the, like, Nintendo light gun, mm -hmm. the Zapper, Sega Genesis, or the Sega Master System had one. None of that crap worked. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, like, I remember th there was a Terminator game, a Die Hard mm -hmm. game, the Aerosmith game, oh, yeah. where you used a gun on the arcade version. And then the home ports on the Sega and the Super, you're just flying your crosshairs around with a D-pad. And it, it doesn't flow right. It, it was – I noticed there was – one of two things wrong on every one of them. It was either too muddy and your crosshairs didn't move fluidly enough, or it was so super sensitive that the slightest touch would send your crosshairs flying all the way across the screen. They never seemed to find that nice area where it actually felt fluid. It was either too too sensitive or not sensitive enough. Yeah, I I know exactly what you're describing there because uh. 
good friend of mine. Um, he, I remember we played, uh, we, we were playing a revolution. Aerosmith was the revolution X, I think. Um, yep, and, and, and you shot CDs. Yeah. How, that was just so nineties. It's like a revolution X is kind of a charming game. It wasn't a great game. I mean, it was okay. It wasn't bad, but I don't think it's necessarily a, a great game, but, um, it was better than Journey Escape. Yes, that's true. I've heard the the Journey. Ugh, one of these days, I have to do a show about video games and uh, music <laughs> artists. But um, yeah, because Revolution X, the way that worked is there was a uh, an organization that kidnapped the members of Aerosmith, and yeah, you had to find them. And you know, of course, you were shooting a gun with uh, CDs, and you had to try to recover each of the members of Aerosmith during the uh, during the show and. Or during the game and it was a rail shooter so you couldn't really control where you went um so i know rail shooters were pretty popular in the you know back in the 90s i haven't been in an arcade for a... operation wolf oh yeah that was a fun one too and um that one actually uh ported fairly well to the nes for the white gun version um I, did you ever play the operation wolf for the NES? No, I've only ever played that in the arcade. I I, just, I always remember how weird it felt, sh- aiming down and shooting to reload. Yep, I know that. And then because it because it, it, it just so feels so. It, it's the antithesis of the way you would think you would reload. You yep. know. Because I know I'm used to the ones where you have to shoot off screen to reload. Um, like oh, was like Lethal Enforcers. I think had you do that one. Um, Area Fifty One. Um, but. Okay, so yeah, the, but yeah, Operation Wolf, uh, that was actually one of the ones that, at least from my opinion, it did translate fairly well to the NES. Because uh, there's three different types of ports that, at least from my observations, there's ports that turn out fairly accurate, or at least as close as the technology at the time would allow. Um, the second type are the butchered ports where the game is just totally ruined. Or maybe not necessarily ruined, but it just doesn't capture the same feel as the arcade. And then the third type is when the home game ends up being totally different from the the uh, arcade game. Which Strider on the NES. Yes, and it's not always a bad thing, at least in my opinion. But we'll certainly be talking about that later on in today's show. But uh, when you mentioned Operation Wolf, that does remind me of the first type of uh, because you mentioned one of the problems with the, you know, using the controller, uh, you know, that you're trying to move your crosshairs around, and it was very rare to find a game where it was just right. You know, it was either too fast or too slow. And from what I recall with Operation Wolf, the controller version did actually work fairly well. But they did also have the light gun you could use as well for, well, I'm sure, of course, you probably have memories of how the light gun worked for the NES it was crap. Yeah, it's. I. It wasn't okay. It was okay for Duck Hunt, but when you did have games where there was more shooting, it wasn't always very accurate. Um. So let's talk, talk about start by talking about some of the uh, more accurate uh, ones that we that we've uh, maybe seen or experienced. I, I would years. actually say I would actually say in that category, even though I bitched about the Sega Master System earlier, I'd say a lot of those. I mean, yes, obviously, you know, the graphics aren't as sharp, the music's not as sharp, but like, like I put it with like Rostin and R-Type and Space Harrier and whatnot, for the technology, they were as accurate as they could be. You still felt like, I mean, the levels were the same, the the villain, you know, the bad guys would come out at the same points and whatnot. It was just graphically and audibly inferior, but it was still the same game, essentially. Yeah, and that's, I know Rostin was one of the ones I thought about well, uh, I was, before I called you, um, when I was reviewing my notes for the show, it's like, yeah, it, uh, Rostin and I were, I've played the, you know, both the, the home and the arcade, and yeah, with the exception of the graphics, it actually did turn out fairly, you know, pretty well. Um, now you're gonna know more about these, probably gonna know more about the, the Sega ones. Now, did you have a Master System, or did you just when you were a kid, or when I was a kid, I did not have a Master System. Okay. We, you know, there used to be that old debate: you can get one Master System or Nintendo. 
and we got Nintendo. This was like right when it, for the first Christmas it was available. So I didn't get a Master System till years later. But I I, I do remember uh, some kid on my block had one. So I would play these arcade games at his house, and then he'd play original games at my house. Mm-hmm. So and the Master System, like I said, because I think there was a difference here in when you're just like Nintendo didn't make arcade games that often at that point. I mean, there were Nintendo made games, but Nintendo didn't make that many arcade games. Sega, before they got into the home, the home ports or the home systems, that's what they did. So they had all the source codes that they could just alter. So I think it was easier and more technically proficient on Sega's end to make an arcade port than it was for Nintendo, who essentially had to start from scratch when they were trying to make an arcade port. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And um, because I know you mentioned R Type, uh, that one I remember playing in the arcade. I don't think I've ever played that one on a home system. Um, said most when I was a kid, most of the uh, arcade games I played at home were the NES because I was in the same boat where you know yeah I could only really afford one system. And my friends all had NESs. Uh, you know, I didn't you know really know anyone that uh, that had a Sega Master System. Um, so one one arcade game that I remember playing a lot at home, uh, Contra for the NES, which you know again, uh, ignoring the the graphical limitations, I think it turned it actually was very accurate and had a, a very similar feel to the arcade. Um, and of course, one of the big differences they they changed the screen resolution because you know of course in the arcade you've got it in the portrait landscape, whereas in your you know your 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 home on the TV it's going to be the opposite way. It's going to be you know landscape instead of portrait. Um, so that's one that I remember turning out fairly well. Uh, I think the main difference is the 3D segments had a time limit in the arcade for some reason. Um, and then also, you know how they had the little pods that came flying by, with the, the yes, you, you, with your special weapons. Yeah, the the NES version they just had probably because of graphical limitations. Uh, they had the letter, and in the arcade game, it actually had a picture of a gun. Um, so I, I kind of like the letter system better because it, it was easier to know what you were getting. Um, well, but then sometimes the port is better. Look at look at now. No, this isn't technically a port, but it's more of the inspiration. Look at Haunted Castle in the arcade to Castlevania on the NES. They're mm-hmm. essentially the same game, and Castlevania was meant to be a port of Haunted Castle. After you played Castlevania, Haunted Castle is so slow oh, yeah. and clunky and awkward that mm-hmm. it just everything seemed to flow better on the if we'll call it a port. Yeah, it's, I know, it's, that's kind of one of those gray areas because um, from, now, did Haunted Castle come before Castlevania or? Yes, it, okay. it was an arcade game in Japan first. We, we never got it over here at that mm-hmm. point. It was an arcade game in Japan that they turned into what we know as Castlevania. Yeah. And we eventually got, got essentially Haunted Castle with new graphics and whatnot as Castlevania Chronicles. And it is clunky and awkward and slow and it's cumbersome. And maybe if I'd played that first, it wouldn't seem as such. But I'm so used to Castlevania that that Haunted Castle slash Castlevania Chronicles just it's a bad game. Yeah. And that's one thing that can definitely make, you know, a game less enjoyable is when it does have that, uh, you know, that slow, clunky feel to it. Um, Because I played. Haunted Castle once on an emulator, and um, yeah, like I said, it just it didn't do it for me. It it didn't feel it didn't really feel like a proper Castlevania game. And I think again, it was just because it was so slow. Um, but technically, it's the first Castlevania game. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I know Castlevania is one of my all-time favorite video game series, and it's definitely one I want to uh, return to later and you know at a later date. Um, but again, moving on with uh, other ones from this era, Ghost and Goblins. Um, that's one that I remember being, you know, again, another one of those ports where it was pretty close. Uh, 
you know, to the arcade as far as the feel and, and the stage layout. Though I'm not sure if the arcade version pulled the same uh, trick ending on you as the home version did. Um, have you ever played the home version or, or beaten it? I, I've or? only played the home version. I've never played that in the arcade. Well, one that I can think of that did have a major difference with ports would be Gauntlet. When Gauntlet oh, yeah. was ported to the NES, the, the Gauntlet machine, and I'm just talking the original here, not mm -hmm. Gauntlet Legends or anything, but the, the gauntlet machine was never ending that you, you would just constantly, it would recycle levels after level 99 and there was no ending the gauntlet. Okay. Maybe not the NES. I'm think I do know the Sega Genesis gauntlet was, it, it was more of an RPG, still mm -hmm. the same top down play style, but it was more of an RPG element and you were working towards fighting a dragon as an ending. So I do know for that one, some home ports had an ending where the arcade was just you play until you run out of quarters. Yeah, and the uh, Gauntlet for the NES is one of those games that's near and dear to me because my normal co-host Steve, uh, he had that game, and we always loved playing it. And uh, um, the I, one of the things that was different from the arcade is well, first you could I think you could both players could be the same character. Um, where I believe in the first Gauntlet game, you know, one person had to be the elf, one person had to be the wizard, one person had to be the warrior, and one person had to be the Valkyrie. Um, where, and I remember in the in the NES version, one of the things that was different is you had to collect uh, parts of a password because there was a definite ending. And I think you could level up. Um, it's and as when you leveled up, of course, you got more health. But it's been a while since I played Gauntlet for the NES, but I know it did have that going for it, where it did have Gauntlet Legends. Game. Gauntlet Legends had um, that actually had a level up system, and you could on an arcade machine you could save your game mm -hmm. oh, only yeah. on well, well, not just on your one because you could put a flash drive in it and move your game from machine to machine, but you had a password and a login so you could continue leveling up. And I remember I was excited when that came to PS2. I was like, yeah, Gauntlet Legends. I'm, I love playing this in the arcade. Holy shit, was that not the same game Ooh. on the PlayStation 2? I don't know if that was technical limitations or they just wanted the name. But the Gauntlet Legends on PS2 was a piece of crap compared to the Gauntlet Legends arcade machine. Yeah, because I've never played Gauntlet Legends in the... Um, I've not, I haven't played any of the Gauntlet Legends games, um, so yeah, I'm not sure how they compared from arcade to home, but it, so it sounds like as though it didn't quite didn't quite make the translation as as, uh, as well as it should have. No, no. Now, here, um, here's another one. Have you ever played uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for the arcade game for the NES? I don't know if I've ever played that one. I played the arcade version all the time. Which I, was the, the, tons the, of the, fun. The, 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 the four-player one. Yeah, I played the four-player one all the time. I, I mean, I have the first NES TMNT game, but that's not the arcade yeah. one. The, that, that's the one where the, the electric seaweed shocks you. Oh. And you, you get run over by random trucks. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having flashbacks of that, that damn, damn stage. <laughs> but... Yeah, TMNT, the arcade game. Uh, I personally, I've played the, again, both the arcade game uh, and the, the NES version. And personally, I think the NES did come off, it, it did translate fairly well. Um, they did include a couple extra stages. Of course, the main problem is, um, you know, you didn't get the four-player version because it was released before uh, Nintendo made their four-player adapter. Um, but other than that, I personally enjoyed it. From what I understand, it's one of those games that uh, NES fans kind of either really like or really hate. Um, I personally didn't think it was too bad. Uh, another game that I remember playing a lot in the arcade, uh, Xenophobe. It, it was, seriously, we're not alien, but we're alien. Exactly. Yeah, because uh, Xenophobe or Xenophobe, I'm not sure how they pronounce it, but the artwork style was definitely inspired by the movie Alien, and I personally thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, the the arcade version you had, uh, 
the screen split into three different segments. And uh, so, you know, you could, it was kind of cool because up to three people could play and you didn't have to explore the same screen. You know, everyone could go to a different part of the space station or uh, the spaceship that was infected with aliens. Um, then the Nintendo version came along, which of course was only, excuse me, uh, was only limited to two people. The, again, fairly well, uh, fairly well executed for an NES game. Uh, the only thing that was really different is in this one, you couldn't lose your weapon. Eventually, in the NES version, your, your weapons did eventually run out of ammo, uh, but you always had this default phaser weapon. Um, where, but you got other weapons like a laser gun, a lightning gun, and a gas gun. Um, but event, after a certain number of shots, they were pretty much useless. But one thing that was kind of fun um, about the arcade, uh, do you remember punching people and stealing their weapons? I don't remember. I only played that one a couple of times. The the one I remember that was the best alien ripoff from that era was SAR Search and Rescue. That one I haven't played. What was that one like? It it, it was alien. You, you okay. get me. You know, it, it's there are people catacombed to walls and aliens jump out of their chest. It, it was a total alien ripoff. But SAR Search and Rescue played yeah. the hell out of that at a grocery store we used to have here. Yeah, and the um another one, the only real other difference with uh, Xenophobe, though, is, as I recall in the arcade game, I think you could shoot diagonally, but you couldn't do that in the NES version, but it's still another one that I had a lot of fun with, um, and as again, I, I think turned out fairly well, considering uh, the, the limitations of going from the arcade to the NES. But that, that's all talking about the 8-bit or below era. You also had, in the higher res eras, where you had PC gaming becoming so popular that for like for instance the Sega CD was porting PC games like Double Switch and Night Trap and whatnot as well as a bunch of others that they would port them over to the Sega CD and those tended obviously just like the same way with Rostin and all that you you had to make a downgrade in graphics because Sega CD with a, with only a 1X drive could not handle the same kind of video playback that a yeah. PC could. But there were a couple of cases where they improved the PC version. One of them would be Dune. The Dune hmm. game for the PC, the RPG one, only had text on the screen. But then when the Sega CD came out, they recorded voices and music. Oh, cool. So the Sega CD version of Dune, it plays the same, and I, it honestly plays quite well with a with a D-pad and three buttons. It, it, it doesn't seem limited. But it's actually the technically superior version because even though the graphics took a slight downgrade, you get spoken lines and music and sound effects, which you did not have on the PC version. What? So there are occasions where they make it better. Yeah, that's cool because um, I, I know that uh, you know, music and sound effects can certainly add a lot to the game because it, you know, if you're especially if you're now. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that wasn't that game that Dune version um like a point and click strategy type game where you moved around army units? Uh, the, there are actually two. The, the the one you're thinking of is actually on the PC. It was called Dune 2, Battle for Arrakis. But on the Sega Genesis, that was released as just Dune. The Sega CD Dune is a different game, and it's more of a uh, it's more of a point-and-click adventure, you know, where you're going through people talking on the screen, and you figure out what... It's more of a Snatcher, Rise of the Dragon type game. Okay. But, but it does have some some point-and-click elements. It's got a shooter stage and whatnot. It, so it's, that one's a little more complex. So the Dune on Sega CD and the Dune on Sega Genesis are vastly different games. But in a good sort then, of way where where they it actually improved it going to the the, the Genesis or the C D right, Sega and, CD and it, rather. And in one case I'm thinking of, it was the there was the closest version to the arcade, and that would be Mortal Kombat. Now obviously mm -hmm. when Mortal Kombat came to the, the SNES and the and the Jenny you know, certain concessions had to be made. The SNES neutered the whole thing and just oh, yeah. castrated. But they also had to take a graphical downgrade, as did the Genesis. Now, the Sega CD version of Mortal Kombat had the, ag the exact audio files from the arcade. It had the exact music and only a very slight 
graphical downgrade. So until an emulator or something like a PS2 came around, the Sega CD version of Mortal Kombat was the only real home port of the arcade version of MK. Yeah, and this transitions into the second type, uh, the ruined ports or butchered ports, um, as I've heard people call them. This is where the game doesn't quite translate as well as it should. Sometimes it's due to technical limitations, and in the case of Mortal Kombat, sometimes this is because of, uh, you know, the, the censorship or the graphics. Now, in the case of uh, Mortal Kombat, when the, the SNES uh, took out the, uh, you know, the, the blood and also changed a lot of the fatalities, do you think that ruined it or just made it? It different? absolutely ruined it, and the sales spoke for it. Because at that point, you have to remember, while Sega was still doing really good against Nintendo, the Super Nintendo having more original titles and I guess more A-list titles, if you will, yeah. they were they were beating Sega in the market. And then Mortal Kombat came out. The Sega Genesis version sold seven times as much <laughs> as the Super Nintendo version because people were like, I want gore. I want the blood. I want to when I hit somebody, I don't want sweat <laughs> falling off of them. They did not want that censored version, and they sent a very clear message with their wallets that I will not buy your censored version. I will go to the competition for the, the, the Sega CD version wasn't out at this point for the real version of Mortal Kombat. Yeah, and as I recall, I believe when uh... – when Mortal Kombat 2 was released for the Super Nintendo, then they decided to bring the blood back because they realized, okay, people want to see the blood. People want to see because they the got killed yeah. in sales. And I know uh, one. We've already talked a little bit about uh, Midnight Resistance and Forgotten Worlds, where you know, again, we had these games where uh, you know they worked beautifully in the arcade. It's just unfortunately because of that rotate, you know, that. Uh, the play control just couldn't translate very well to a standard controller. Um, I mean, I'm sure if they made some sort of special controller, you know, maybe they, you know, those games would have played better on the home system. But They actually started doing that in the disc era. You, you could get, like, for fighting games, you could get a fighting game controller and whatnot, where mm -hmm. you, you did have specialties there. But let's not forget what is arguably the second most famous after Mortal Kombat home port that was censored beyond belief and that would be for the TurboGrafx 16 splatterhouse oh yeah because i know the i think we talked about a, a little bit about this on the controversial episode where yeah they had like the flying upside down crosses and the um you know the, some of the blood was taken yeah. out it, the mask was changed from white to red because Paramount threatened to sue over too many similarities with mm -hmm. Jason Voorhees, which is a bunch of crap because, let's face it, it's not like Paramount invented freaking hockey yeah. masks. And another game that I think falls in the ruined ports, uh, Street Fighter Two for the Genesis. Now, the Street Fighter Two. What the... version? There's only 14 <laughs> different editions. Yes, There's true. Turbo Edition and Super Turbo Edition and, and Speedy Turbo Edition. And, oh, shut up. It's and the same yes. game. <laughs> yeah, because the... I mean, I personally felt that once we got to the 16-bit era, at least for the Super Nintendo, most of the games that came over from the arcades did translate fairly well. Um, like SNK, they're famous for making a lot of fighting games. Um, like one of my favorite NES games was uh, Samurai Showdown, which, again, I loved in the arcade and I loved on the home version as well. Um, of course, the home version did lose the NES... I'm sorry, the Super Nintendo version did lose a couple of things. Like the arcade version had pan and zoom, where if the two fighters were close together, the screen would zoom in on them. If they moved far apart, it would, you know, pull back. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the arcade version also had blood. And you lost both of those when it came to the, the, the Super Nintendo. And also another thing I remember about the Super Nintendo version for some reason, they changed some of the dialogue, and again, I think it's just Nintendo being Nintendo at that time. Uh, for example, there's a character named Tam Tam, and one of his post-fight quotes is in the arcade is, my blood boils for battle. But for some reason, in the Super Nintendo version, they changed it to, my sweat boils for battle. Uh, 
didn't they also alter didn't they also alter something about like the car smashing stage in street fighter on street fighter 2 yeah remember one of the mini games you got to smash the car in under 20 seconds or whatever i seem to remember the dialogue of the like oh my car was was different in the nintendo version for some reason yeah, uh, that I don't remember. Um, it's been a while since I played uh, Super, or played any Street Fighter Two game for the the Super Nintendo. But um, I don't remember if they actually in the Super Nintendo. I don't think they did the "Oh my car" after smashing the car. Um, but I mean, uh, getting back to SNK, uh, like Fatal Fury, I know was another game of theirs that I really liked, and again turned out fairly well for the. Uh, the Super Nintendo, really the only main thing that they took out of that. Final Fight was kind of interesting because I don't think there were a lot of games doing this at the time, but you had a foreground and a background, um, and you could jump between the two of them, which I think they took out of the Super Nintendo version just because of graphics, but, or I'm sorry, because of... um, No, they actually did more than that. The Super Nintendo version only gave you two playable characters. They actually removed the character of Guy, because in the arcade you had three playable characters. So they removed Guy from that, and there was such fan backlash that they actually had to release a special edition called Final Fight Guy. Yeah, you're actually thinking. Yeah, you're thinking. I was. We're thinking of two different games here. Uh, yeah, because Final Fight. That was I. I know another one where I remember playing it at home, and it's like, okay, wait a second. How come I only get Cody and Hagar? Um, but yeah, I know they came out with the special version there. And, um, but yeah, SNK, I know a lot of their fighting games ported over fairly well. Uh, but when I was talking about Street Fighter 2, uh, for those who haven't played it on the Genesis, well, you know, Street Fighter 2 used that six button setup where, you know, you had punch, uh, you had hard punch, um, hard kick. Yeah, I, I remember to switch between them, you had to hit the start button to swap between kick and punch. Yeah. It was irritating as hell. Yeah. And of on course, a three button. Yeah, and eventually, of course, they, they did come out with a Genesis uh, controller that did have six buttons. But if you had to, yeah, if you had to play with, uh, you know, the regular three-button controller, you were at a severe disadvantage with that. Eternal um, Champions was the same way, and that was a Sega Genesis exclusive, strangely enough. And now, since we're talking about ruined ports, uh, let's go to one of the, the old standbys, Pac-Man for the Atari 2600. Oh boy! Now, now you wouldn't think a game is Pac-Man's not exactly rocket science, so you wouldn't think that a game like Pac-Man would be very hard to convert. But, but the <laughs> time that they gave him, yeah, they said this has to be on shelves at Christmas. So by Halloween, we have to actually be physically making the cartridges. So in June, he's told you've got three three to five months to get this out. Programming an entire video game from scratch, even something as simple as Pac-Man in that period of time, is ludicrous. That's why they had to do what they had to do. That wasn't even hardware limitations. That was your artificial demand that this will be on the shelf for Christmas meant I've got no time to do this. I thought part of it was because in the one of the complaints people have about the Atari 2600 version of Pac-Man is how the ghosts flicker so much. And I thought that was because, uh, I thought that was due to a limitation where, like, they could only have, um, like, Pac-Man and two ghosts on the screen. So in order to, or there was some, there was a problem with the number of moving objects they can have on the screen. So what they had to do is they had to make the ghosts flicker because there was only so much they could display per frame. Um, so I thought, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure that's part of it, but mm-hmm. time was the big issue. Oh, yeah. That, that programming a game like that, in three to five months was just insanity yeah that, that it didn't matter that they threw a million dollars at it you can't work faster than you can work yeah and i mean video games come a long way where i think they are starting to take more development time but you know yeah so that's a good point I, I totally forgot about that i mean i know they did rush pac-man but i didn't know that they i forgot to <laughs> to bring that up so thanks for catching that um let's see cubert that was another one that I loved in the arcade, but I remember trying trying to play it on the NES. And the reason that didn't work is... Uh, because you're at that 45-degree angle. Yeah, because uh, Qbert, 
yeah, it's just one of those games that just worked so much better in the arcade. Because I think in the Nintendo version, they did give you a couple different types of controller options. But None of them felt right, if I'm remembering right, though. Yeah, and um, 720 Degrees uh, was a skateboarding game. I think in the arcade, they had, like, the rollerball. No, it was actually a, a, a controller tilt, or a, okay. jo- a joystick tilted at a certain degree, so you still could go in 360 degrees. But, yeah, it that that thing never worked properly on a home system. But let's talk for a moment about the one home system that nobody had that were perfect arcade ports. And that would be the Neo Geo. Yep. (laughs) The Neo Geo. What you people need to picture is, okay, you're thinking of a Nintendo game, a SNES game, a Genesis game, the cartridge size. What you literally got with a Neo Geo was a cartridged ver- motherboard from a Neo Geo arcade machine. So this thing is the size of a splayed open encyclopedia. That's how big the goddamn cartridges were. And they were $700 a cartridge. The system itself was 2000 bucks. This is in the same time period a Genesis is being called overly expensive for being $130. Yeah, because I, I remember the, I, I don't remember exactly how much it is, but I know, yeah, the, the Neo Geo was, it was expensive because, yeah, you were getting the most direct port of the arcade game that you possibly could. It's just, unless you were born into a wealthy family, yeah, uh, good luck, or if you had a lot of friends who were wealthy, uh, good luck finding someone who actually owned it so you could play those games. Um, and I think another one of the problems people had about Neo Geo uh, it was made by, I believe Neo Geo was made by SNK, and they were most... They, yeah, actually, SNK owns the Neo Geo yeah. system and all of the games on it. Yeah, because uh, SNK was most well-known for its fighting games. Um, I know I... Don't, don't you dare forget the Metal Slug series. Yes, Metal Slug was a... I, I, yes, Metal Slug was a good one. I, I have played a couple of Metal Slugs, but yeah, they were they were known, though, mostly for their, their fighting games. Um, and yeah, Metal Slug, but, you know, they didn't really have as many, as much variety, I guess you could say, as other systems. Well, the SNK also had a lot of sports titles. Mm-hmm. They had the football titles, the basketball, baseball, and golf, the the arcade ones that were, that were way closer to being how, how these various games really played than the Nintendos and the John Maddens and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So the SNK also had a lot of the SNK stuff were what I call bar games that you saw the SNK arcade machines in arcades, but you also tended to see these in bars and restaurants more than any other company's arcade machines. Any reason why you think that is, or just think it was probably because of sports games? I I think it was because of the sports games, because if you're going to a bar, you know, you're, you're going to a bar in Detroit in the eighties, you're going to, you're going to make a lot more money as an arcade game in a bar on tennis or golf or something like that than you are on Forgotten Worlds or yeah. Cyber. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so the now let's get to the third type of adapt or the third type of uh, port, and these are probably more accurately described as adaptations. And we mentioned already one before, Strider, uh, Gauntlet. I think is another one where. Uh, it would kind of fall into this category where it shares some similarities, but it can be vastly different. Uh, now, have you played both Strider in the arcade and the NES? I've never played Strider in the arcade, but I do have the Sega Genesis version, which is a relatively yeah. accurate port of it. So so I've, I've played between the Genesis version is relatively accurate of Strider. The NES version, they never had one on the SNES, but on the NES... It's an it's a Zelda game. It's it's a top down RPG collecting stuff using elements. It, it's a Zelda clone. As because the the version I've seen from Strider on the NES was um uh, it was side scrolling. Okay, okay side scrolling, but it, it yeah. was essentially a Zelda type oh, yeah. game. It was yeah. much more of an RPG than it was an action kill everything on the screen game. 
for the Genesis and the arcade. Yeah, and personally, I liked the the NES version of Strider better than the arcade version. Um, another game where it was vastly different, Bionic Commando. And we talked a little bit about this during the controversial episode because in the you know the Japanese because the because because you can't beat the Nintendo version. League, you know, literally, you can't. Yeah, it glitches when you get to the main boss, so there is no ending. But yeah, the I had a question. Remember, the other main controversy is the uh, in in the NES version. You know, you yeah, you blow up the guy's head. It is possible to beat him, but you have to make sure you brought the exact right weapon. Um, but the because in the the original version of Bionic Commando was called Top Secret: The Resurrection of Hitler. Um, but as far as actually going into the game itself, uh, I know you, I think you've said you've played the arcade version. I've only played the arcade yeah. version because I heard how different the it's, the NES version was. Yeah, because the NES one. Main problem I had with the NES one is I think it's one of those games that's too long to play in one sitting, but you have to play it in one sitting because there's no save or no password. And you've got this large map with like, I think there's like 20 different areas, and you have to go around to all these areas. Again, we're talking about the NES version. The uh, the arcade version is just a side-scroller. Uh, I think it's only like four or five stages, um, and it's not that long. But yeah, the uh, any the NES version just totally different, more complex and a bit longer. But yeah, it, I don't know why they didn't put a password or save because that's one of those games that really could have benefited from having a password or a save. But then there's also another weird difference between port porting. An arcade game is specifically designed to kill you very fast, so you keep <laughs> putting quarters in. A home game like a Super Mario Brothers or a Legend of Zelda is meant to give you an extended experience for your $60. So when you port an arcade game to a home system, they don't play right in that respect either because they have totally different desires for you as a player. Oh, that's true. Uh, yeah, they're, they're not called – we didn't call them quarter munchers for uh... – <laughs> There was a reason we called them quarter munchers. Do you know what the average, and I'm talking back when this game was new, Defender, the average time between deaths Wasn't was it? 7 to 11 seconds. Yeah, I knew it was something like 8 to 10, because, yeah, it was designed to, yeah. It was designed <laughs> to kill you as quick as possible, so you put another quarter in. But, yeah, and, you know, that's a good point. And, um, another game that I remember that was just radically different from the arcade to the home Double Dragon. Um, the, of course, if you play in the arcade version, you know it's two player, um, and uh, you're, uh, it's two player, and uh, you know you get all your moves to start. But now, have you ever played uh, Double Dragon for the NES? For the NES, yes, I. That's one I've. Okay, I've technically played the arcade game, but it was on a Play Choice Ten, so it was still the Nintendo game. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, the, the NES version, it again, totally different because one of the things that was kind of interesting about it is you had a, an experience point system. And as you gain levels, you gain more moves. Uh, the main problem with, uh, oh yes, also the, the NES version of Double Dragon was uh, one player, except it did have an awful two-player fighting version. Um, I don't know if you ever, did you ever try that or... No, I, I don't. Well, maybe I did. I, I just I remember playing that and getting frustrated yeah. because, you know, bros before hoes, dude. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So that was another one um, that was radically different. Uh, another one I can think of uh, off the top of my head, uh, Moonwalker. Now, they were I don't know if you'd really consider it a port, though, for this because they were released about a month apart. So there's no way that they would have released this game. And then a month, you know, in the arcade, and then a month later, have it on the, uh, you know, on the home version. Because uh, Moonra Moonwalker, did I say Moonraker before? Uh, but, no, you said Moonwalker. Okay, you know, of course, based on Michael Jackson, the arcade game was a top-down where you were, you know, usually mostly ranged combat with magic attacks. But the home version was a side-scroller. And, you know, you 
Michael relied more on kicking and, uh, you know, kicking and punching as opposed to, <laughs> yes, and, and doing that. Uh, and then I know one thing that both versions had is they, they did have a dance special attack where you could get everyone to dance on the screen and then kill them. I remember getting the zombies to dance in the cemetery. Yeah. It, it, it was like you were an acting thriller. Yes. <laughs> Though, so that was another one where, you know, again, they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't really make them the same. Um, any, because I know we're, we've been going for almost an hour, and so we're uh, getting low on time. Um, as a final thought, any game adaptations from, like, arcade to home that really stand out in your mind or uh, ones that you really enjoyed? In all honesty, while while the controller issue is an issue with stuff like Forgotten Worlds, it doesn't play that badly on the on the PlayStation Two because of the analog sticks. Same with like uh, Smash TV and whatnot. But it tended it tends to not work out properly when when you do when you bring an arcade game over. Even today with the virtual consoles and the Wii's and you know the Playstations and all that, when they bring these games over, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right on your TV. Like I played the X-Men game, the six player with the big extended wide screen. Oh yeah. And and then a couple of years ago they released that for the virtual consoles and I downloaded it and I'm like I don't know, it just feels dull and redundant now. But yet, when I ran across that machine at an, at a, a pizza place a couple of years ago, it was still fun. Mm-hmm. There are some games that just, they're an arcade game for a reason. They're not a home game. Yeah, and one game that I enjoy both on the arcade and the home, um, Darius. Uh, that One of the things that was, that was interesting about Darius is it had an, it was just a space shoot-em-up game, you know, like Life Force or Gradius. Uh, but it had actually an extra wide screen. So that was kind of interesting. It gave you, you know, this perspective. You're just this tiny little ship on this huge field. And when you take that to the the home version, you know, again, game's still kind of fun, but it just doesn't feel the same when... Um, Afterburner. Okay, that one, I've, I think I played that in the arcade. I don't think I played it on the home version. I've got it on Genesis. Wow, is that not the same game? Because in the arcade, you're sitting in a fake cockpit that rotates and spins <laughs> with you, and you're holding like an actual airplane, you know, stick. And in the arc, and then at home, you're on yeah, the, D-pad, the D-pad. It's just, and... it's, it's just like, okay, this is dull. Yeah, and um, I'm not sure how well it would translate to home, but Star Wars, and I'm talking about the first Star Wars, the old vector game. graphics yep. one. Yeah, that one I could see not. I mean, you, something you gotta have that that you know the the vehicle control handle. I mean, it, that game just wouldn't feel right with a D pad or a joystick. Um, but another one that doesn't feel right is discs discs of Tron. You need to be sitting inside mm-hmm. that purple black light case with that controller and the little spinny knob for discs of Tron to work. Yeah. Well, one game that. Again, I'm not. Sh- I know they were released in the same year, so I'm not. I don't know when, so I'm not sure if they deci- intentionally decided to make two different games. But you remember the movie Willow, right? Yeah, but I don't think I've ever played a game for that. Yeah, there's because there's two versions. Uh, there's the arcade one and then the home one. Um, I played them both. The arc, the home one, I think, is better. The arcade, again, they're two totally different games. Where the arcade version is a side-scrolling platforming. Um, where you play, some stages you play as Willow, and some stages you play as Mad Mardigan. With Willow, he relies on ranged attacks with his magic, and then Mad Mardigan uses his sword. Um, when they ported it to the home uh, consoles, though, they actually, it, it, they did it a top-down, the Nintendo version was a top-down game like Legend of Zelda. And, the well, the arcade one basically follows the plot of the movie uh, more closely. The Nintendo version greatly deviates from the plot, but in a way it's a lot more fun because there's this larger world for you to explore. Um, also, the character of Willow is totally different in the two because um, in the NES version, he uses a sword and a shield and a variety of magic items. Um, so again, totally different from the movie and what 
He wasn't a, a, in the movie. You know, arcade games, totally different. But again, both games are still a lot of fun where you want to do both. So, well, I think we're about out of time here because, uh, like I said, I, I know we've uh, we're been going for about an hour here. So, um, a lot longer than I thought this episode would go. So, definitely thank you for your input, Josh, and uh, for joining me on this episode today. So, uh, if someone wants to hear more of your uh, you more of your uh, voice or more of your uh, work on the internet, where can they find you? Stop placating me. It's <laughs> nonsense. Okay, if people someone... want to hear more of my nonsense. Okay, if someone wants to hear more of your nonsense, where where can they find you? 1201beyond.com is my website. And, of course, you can find me at poigamestudio.com. Uh, you can also download the podcast here through uh, Podbean, and it is available through iTunes. Uh, so I'd like to, again, thank you for joining us, Josh, and have a good evening or morning, afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.